You're listening to The Served Up Show, a podcast that features inspiring beverage professionals and topic experts that share their passions through meaningful content. Your hostesses, Bridget Albert, is best known as the Market Fresh Mixologist, an industry mentor with over 25 years of experience. And I'm Julie Milroy, best known for my passion for leading change and helping others grow in their careers. Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our industry. Hi there, it's Julie. Thanks for tuning in. On this episode, Bridget and I are chatting with Dean Michael Chang of FIU Chaplin School of Hospitality and Tourism Management. Dean Michael shares his journey into the hospitality industry, following his stomach in the search of food, food, and more food. This brought him to leading a best-in-class hospitality and tourism school that is student-centric, one of the highest four-year graduation rates, the largest majority-minority institution, and graduating the most Black and Hispanic people in hospitality management in the country. Sit back, grab your favorite drink or snack, and get inspired. Welcome to Served Up, Michael Chang. How are you today? We're so happy to have you here. I'm great, and I'm really excited to be here with you guys. Been looking forward to this all week long. That's fantastic. We've been waiting for this episode as well and to learn more about you, your story, and the Chaplin School of Hospitality and Tourism at FIU. Thank you, Julie. It's my pleasure. I'm really excited. Great. Well, Michael, we would really love to know your story. You know, where does your passion for hospitality come from? Well, um, I'm not really sure I can pinpoint it, but I think it really goes back to my fondness of people, I guess. Uh, I've always liked working with people, for people, and I just like being around people. Um, I remember when I was growing up, I had told my dad, so I grew up in Malaysia, and I told my dad I was going to go to the U.S. and study to be a study management information systems. <clears throat> so I tried that for one semester and decided it wasn't really me because there was just not a whole lot of people in that field. It was more sitting in front of a computer. So I decided to change major at that point. And then uh, at that time too, I was working in the kitchens with the residence uh, dining services. And they said, well, maybe you should try and do something that relates to what you're doing today. You seem to like, work, to like working with food. So I said, well, Okay. And they sent me over to, um, to talk to the professor in hospitality management. And I had no idea what hospitality management is. So I discovered then what hospitality is and really, really fell in love with it. And that was the last major I had. So there was no looking back for you. <laughs> well, I, I, did, I did briefly venture outside for a little bit. And this was probably... Let's see, five, seven, seven years in into hospitality. And I, I wondered to myself if um, there was transferable skills because I've been learning about it. It was way back in uh, early 2000s. And I thought, well, I'm going to try something a little different. And 
uh, after being the program director for culinary arts program for five years, I'd applied for a position as the assistant dean for math science and health career. And I did that for a year and 10 months. And that was probably the longest year and 10 months in that position ever. <laughs> so then I decided, okay, now I'm going to go straight back in the hospitality and there's no more changing after this. Well, we're so glad that you did. <laughs> we're so glad <laughs> to too. have you here. What is, uh, what's some of your favorite things about hospitality, about the industry? Well, I have a real passion for food. <clears throat> and you know, um, just one thing that I learned too, when, when people talk to me, I said, man, anytime you talk about food, you just, you just light up. I'm like, yeah, I don't know. You know, it's just a passion. You know? So I think maybe that's what it is. Uh, you know, I love food. I love traveling. I love people. So it, then the passion just comes to life. Now, if I were to try to talk about something else, um, I don't know, quantum mechanics, something that I would suck at it. So. <laughs> It's not as exciting as food and beverage and, and right. people, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. Was food a big part of growing up in Malaysia or? For me, yeah. I remember as a kid <clears throat> hanging out in the kitchen. So it was a very traditional household, you know, ext extended family back in Malaysia. And I grew up with my aunt and my grandma <clears throat> and lots of cousins. And I will always be in the kitchen looking at what my aunt was cooking and wondering how she made it and why it tasted so good. So back then, you know, even then I was, uh, oh, probably eight, nine years old. <clears throat> Didn't really realize that this passion for food until I came here and discovered this thing called hospitality and go, oh, this, you could actually major in this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so then I was like, okay, let's try yes. that. Yes, you sure can. And you know, it's that curiosity, I believe, that really um, speaks to us within the industry. And there's so much to learn that I always say, like, if you stop learning about this industry, go get a different job, because mm -hmm. it's always changing. And there's always something to be curious and excited about. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. And food is one of those things that continue to draw me in, you know, even any conversations. Um, <clears throat> but I could be talking about romance and somehow I just kind of dive right back into food you know? <laughs> well, I could be hanging out with my friends and the conversation would just shift right back to that it seems it just seems to be natural for me so do you cook at home well that's a strange part right <clears throat> so I love cooking um, and my wife doesn't like my cooking because oh I no oh no <laughs> He says, you need a bigger kitchen, which I, I do. I need a bigger kitchen, but I, apparently I make a mess. So like, <laughs> so we, we tend to order a lot. Oh, nice. That's kind of like my son. I want to, he's definitely passionate about cooking, but when he, when I let him cook at home, he makes a big mess. So I like to put him in those cooking classes where it's a little bit more controlled and they can clean it up. So I understand your wife, where she's coming from. <laughs> Well, so I, I've learned to miss the class, you know, everything in this place and then pre-prep everything and then as you clean it, you go along. But still, I like a bigger kitchen than what I have. <clears throat> so if I get a chance, whenever I get a chance to cook at work, I absolutely jump right at it. In the commercial kitchen. In the commercial I'm kitchen. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, that's super fun. Um, so your journey, you know, it sounds like you really started off in your family home and you got really excited about food and very curious about hospitality and all the opportunities. 
what brought you to FIU and how was the Chaplain School of Hospitality and Tourism Management created? So it's a, it's a strange journey. <clears throat> um, like I said, um, my, my bachelor's was in restaurant management at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. That was my first major there within hospitality. And then I started working as a food service manager for three years before I decided I was going to try something else and ventured over into higher education, working for a metropolitan community college and um, became the program director for the culinary arts program. So I was there for five years in the position before I ventured outside of my comfort zone and happy spot into the world of math, science and health career. And then I uh, decided to... Along the way, I was introduced to what was known as culinology by the Research Chefs Association. And one of the faculty that was looking for there said, I should really go to this conference and check them out. You know, it's like, there's a wood chef in there and research in there. So my master's was in nutritional science and dietetics. So I had a bit of science understanding. So I said, sure, I'll go check them out. <clears throat> and I learned quickly on that this is a group of uh, classically trained chefs working in a corporate environment in food manufacturing. I thought, well, that's intriguing. And how did they do that? So I started talking to them. <clears throat> and along the way, too, one of the, actually the president at that time of the RCA told me that they had been trying to implement a discipline called colonology in higher education. <clears throat> and could we help them with it? So me knowing nothing about food science at that point, said, sure, we'll help you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I came back and said, yeah, we can totally do this. You know, it's one of those things where you have no idea what you bit into and until you tried it. So I said, yeah, we can do this. <clears throat> so I went back, talked to my advisor, talked to my faculty member, and that's how we put together the curriculum. You know, it's a bunch of classes and then some after, I think maybe three, three or four iterations. <clears throat> and they said, yeah, this looks like the program that we want. And we launched it. And this is me uh, at that point. How old was I? I think I was in my 30s. Yeah, it was early 30s. And this me without any experience launching curriculums, having just launched one in Nebraska. And then after that, people were calling. The other schools were calling. So to date, we have 16 approved colonology programs across the country and internationally. <clears throat> and then wow. I, I did my um, dissertation <clears throat> when I was at Southwest Minnesota State University on evaluating the competencies for the colonology degree program as well. So, and that's... You know, my affiliation with the Research Chefs Association continued to this day. They still call me. I'm still on the board there whenever they need any assistance with launching new colonology programs. Um, but my passion has always remained in food in the world of hospitality because that's what my first two degrees were. When I got my doctorate, it's also actually hospitality management for Iowa State University. <clears throat> but the dissertation topic was on colonology, the evaluation of the competence is part of it. And how I got to FIU was also by happenstance. I was at a hospitality conference. Um, and there was a bunch of guys hanging around the table, maybe some women too, I think. And they were talking about food science at a hospitality conference. So it's totally, totally unconnected and <clears throat> nothing to do with each other. So I eavesdropped and went over there and asked, why were they talking about food science? And these guys were from FIU. And they said, well, we want to start a food science program at FIU at, at that point. I had no idea where FIU was, so I quickly Googled it, Googled it and found out it was in Miami. But it's not a bad destination. So, And at that point, I was living in uh, South Dakota, in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, but working in Minnesota. So it was a 90-minute commute for me to work. And 
and it was you know Midwest climate down here where it's nice and beautiful. You got the beaches. You got closer to Malaysia climate, probably much closer to the <laughs> tropical climate I grew up in. So I applied for the job, and was very fortunate that they hired me. <clears throat> and I arrived here in. I remember leaving Minnesota that day and just driving with my stuff. And it was like a 14 or 16 hour drive and I stayed overnight in Kansas. So I literally went through a snowstorm and then I got to Kansas, it was sleeting. I'm debating if I want to drive the next day. <laughs> and then as, as I kept going south, the weather got nicer and nicer. <laughs> and finally, when I crossed the Florida Georgia line, I'm like, this is it. This is very nice now. I'm almost in Miami. I didn't know it was another eight hours before you can get to Miami. <laughs> but once I got here, I was like, okay, this is fun. And I like this place. <clears throat> um, within a couple of years of arriving here, uh, I've been working with uh, different administrators across the university. And one of my, uh, I guess, my proudest projects that I did with them, which also relates back to colonology, <clears throat> was setting up a food incubator here at FIU. And at that point, you know, I had just so I got all this knowledge and experience with food product development <clears throat> and what we had done with setting up a colonology program, teaching students how to develop new food products in the emerging marketplace, packaging, doing the sensory science analysis and that kind of stuff. And this food incubator project allowed me to expand my skill set in that area. <clears throat> so that's how we got a grant from City Foundation and was able to launch Startup FIU Food today. And we we're able to hire a director for that. And then so far we've um I think we've brought in over 40 different food entrepreneurs from within the North Miami community to come into the school and we can help them scale up, develop the packaging, do the nutrient analysis for them and really help them to improve the stability of their, of their foods. <clears throat> and around that time too, then I got a call and this is again, you know, so I have many different interests, but as long as it's really around food, I'm happy about it. So. Before I got the call, uh, I had this opportunity to conduct a grant for the USDA. <clears throat> and it was one of those grants where literally a bunch of chefs from Colombia wanted to learn about um, United States cuisine. So I said, well, in order to do that, you have to travel around and eat at different restaurants. So we wrote the proposal and said, you got to eat at Per Se, you eat at a bunch of different high-end restaurants, uh, casual dining restaurants, fast food different places in Chicago, Miami, and New York. <clears throat> well, they accepted the proposal. So <laughs> I was, here, was, here was I with 12 different Colombian chefs and then one of my faculty members, and we were going from restaurants to eating. Like there were days when we ate four or five times a day, and, and this was all on USDA grant money. So it was awesome. I remember nice. being, being at the Hot Rock uh, Hotel here in, in Hollywood, and I got the call while I was touring the basement, the kitchen <clears throat> with the team. That's so and, cool. And they said, well, we want to talk to you. This is the provost assistant. We want to talk to you. Can you call back at five o'clock? So I said, okay. <laughs> so when I called back is when they said, you know, we want to make some changes at the school and we think you'd be the perfect person to be to come to interim dean. Would you be interested? So I'm in the middle of this tour <laughs> and I have to pause <laughs> it for a second, not knowing, uh, I said, well, can I get more details? <laughs> but it was uh, it was one of those things where then I was completely distracted for the rest of the evening. So I, I texted bet. my wife. <laughs> and then I had dinner with the group. You know, they're babbling on. I was sitting at the end there. So I was like, 
trying to engage in a conversation and completely distracted at the same time. So, yeah. so from that point onwards, then, you know, they offered, this university offered me the position to be the interim dean, and I was it for about two years, a little over two years, if I became the permanent dean earlier this year. Uh, but that's, it, again, it seems like stuff that you don't plan for just happen, and then mm-hmm. when it falls in your lap, you say, do you shy away or do you take on that opportunity? So for me, I, was, I just grabbed onto it because it sounded like a great opportunity. And I and I know our I know our listeners, you know, they can only hear you, they can't see you, but you look so happy. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. You look incredibly happy and joyful, you you know, as we're chatting. I wish everybody could see um, the joy that you show when you talk about your journey. It's super wonderful to see. Thank you, Bridget. It's it's been fun, you know, and and there's there's gonna be a lot of um, challenges and ups and downs along the way, I'm sure with any positions but i think when you find something that you're really passionate about and you really like um it's never boring work you know it's always fun work for me yeah and i mean that's incredible so you were the um i'm sorry you said the assistant dean or the interim dean for Mm -hmm. two years and then just the beginning of this year you became the dean permanent yep Mm -hmm. Permanent Dean. Wow. Yeah. Congratulations. Congratulations. So how has this year been for you? I mean, and, you know, being in this new role, very big role as the Dean of, you know, FIU Chaplain School of Hospitality in, in January of 2020. And it's definitely been a challenging year. So how's it, how's the journey been for you? You guys are still doing, rolling out amazing new programs. Well, I don't know if anybody could say, they knew what 2020 was going to be like. You know, I think everybody had a preconceived notion of 2020, right? At New Year's Eve 2019, and all of it just kind of went out the window. Uh, I remember writing a list, <clears throat> top 20 things I want to do in 2020. And the first thing on there was slay the deanship. That's my number one goal. <laughs> if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it well, I'm going to slay it. That was like, what I set out to do for 2020. So I'm glad that I was able to do it <clears throat> and, and get the permanent dean position. Um, you know, thinking back to when I became the interim dean and having conversations with my colleagues at the chaplain school and talking to the provost and talking to the president during the interim period, it really made me realize that we have a lot of genuinely really good, excellent faculty and staff at the school. Uh, and not just your human resources, but also our physical assets. And then when I started digging into it, I realized the school <clears throat> was one of the original six academic units when FIE opened in 1972. I'm like, wow, that's amazing. We've been around longer than University of Central Florida. Wow. Yeah, Central Florida, I think, opened in the mid-80s or the late 80s. Hmm. So we have some serious legacy. On top of that, it, uh, the other thing that fascinated me was the, the names of the faculty who, were, who have taught here in the past. And what really intrigued me, <clears throat> there was this guy named Michael Hurst. And we actually just did a lecture series yesterday with Eddie Sardinia, who was the former CEO of Bacardi on the Michael Hurst Lecture Series. And I remember seeing the name Michael Hurst in a textbook when I was an undergraduate student. You know, and he had this Michael Hurst menu pricing or menu costing strategy. <clears throat> I'm like, who is Michael Hurst? 
<laughs> the textbook didn't really give a lot of information. And I come here and I realize, wait, there's a faculty member here with the name Michael Hurst, the same guy who wrote it into the textbook, and he's no longer alive. And then there's a distinguished lecture series, and the guy was the former president of the National Restaurant Association. Wow, that's incredible. Uh, and then another name I came across was uh, Escoffier. <clears throat> so everybody knows who Escoffier is, and he's a French culinary chef. And he really documented the, 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 your menu methods, right? <clears throat> so I discovered that there's a faculty member here called Marcel Escoffier, who's the nephew of, of this chef Escoffier. And that was just so impressive that here, right here in Florida, in North Miami on our campus, with all these faculty members who really made such a big impact on our industry. And so that was, for me, that was very humbling. <clears throat> um, but beyond just the faculty members too, our industry relationships was really impressive. So I had always wondered, <clears throat> Uh, when I applied to the position here, the Chaplin School of Hospitality and Tourism Management. So who is Chaplin? Right? So when you Google it, then you realize this connection to, at that time, Southern Wine and Spirits and to the Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. And you wonder how is the connection and they discovered the connection um, strengthened by one of our former faculty members, Chip Cassidy, who had recently passed away about a year ago. <clears throat> but he brought that connection to the school, to FIU, and really created a bridge for us in the industry. And one of our deans, the second dean actually, uh, Dean Tony Marshall, <clears throat> he was out there. He was a circuit speaker. He was nationally known. He was the biggest uh, personality in the classroom. I mean, the guy literally just put the FIU name and the, the school's name out there for the industry. And we were very well known among our peers. We still are today. So th yeah. there is a lot of assets <clears throat> that a school has. And that's what makes me so proud to be able to lead the school. It's a fascinating story. And, you know, the, the industry here has such long roots in Miami. And it's incredible that FIU, uh, the Chaplin School, and Southern, at the time, Southern Wine and Spirits, now Southern Glazers have been such a part of that entire industry. And I remember Chip Cassidy and, you know, I know his son, he's one of our, he's our general manager for the state of Florida, Patrick Cassidy. But when I first started the career as a salesperson and Chip Cassidy also ran Crown Wine and Spirits. That was um, I. I got to interact with him, and he was all about educating everybody in wine and spirits, and was such a leader. And I didn't know that he was the conduit for FIU, yeah. and and the naming of Chaplin School of Hospitality. Yeah. So that's new news. Yeah, Chip. Chip's a legend. Everybody knows him. Everybody respects him. Um, and, I mean, it's very sad. It's no longer with us. Uh, we also have two endowed scholarships in Chip's name. And I also made a commitment <clears throat> to his son that his dad's office will remain as, as it is today. Uh, essentially, it's going to be the, the museum's showpiece. Because I think when a person has this kind of impact, not only on the school, but on the lives of the alumni, the students, you know, it's something that needs to be preserved. You know, we, we cannot just forget about it. <clears throat> You're doing such amazing work at FIU. And I think one of the things that really stands out is your dedication and commitment to diversity, equity, 
um, change and belonging. So I'd love for you to share some of your insights on some of the great programs and good work that FIU is doing around diversity. Absolutely. One of the features, the strongest features of FIU is that we're the largest Hispanic serving institution in the country. And we graduate the most um, Hispanics with bachelor's degree in the country. And then when you drill down a little further, the Chaplin School actually has the highest number of graduates uh, of Hispanic and Black graduates in hospitality management in the country. You know, and when you think about it, I'm like, how that happened? Well, number one, I think is with Florida International University. uh, And then where we're based at in Miami, we're very metropolitan city and our population here also is is similar to what the school's population is, uh, demographic is. And when I start to think about the other hospitality programs and I look, well, how is it that like from where I came from, it was predominantly Caucasian, a little bit of African-Americans, but not a whole lot of Hispanics, you know? And then we think about what we have here. It's like, wow, we're really quite diverse. It's incredible. Um, on top of that, <clears throat> which I don't think I've mentioned yet, we also have a campus in China. And here's the other thing, as I got into this interim role, interim dean role at that point, I started wondering, <clears throat> how do we end up in China? Of all places, right? Right, right. Very <laughs> random. How'd that happen? Very random. <laughs> that's, a, that's a story in itself. You know, it was, you know <clears throat> China is huge. Yeah, China is, mm-hmm. is growing. And I think it, it probably will overtake the U.S. one day. I'm not sure when. Um, but I think the opportunity for us to have an entrance into China was also through a couple of really connect, well-connected faculty and administrators here at FIU. They saw the opportunity, they brought it back here and presented it to our dean at that time, who, who was uh, Dean Joe West. <clears throat> he went over, investigated it, and then we put together a proposal, and they selected our proposal to open up campus there. It was a $50 million project, but our investment in it was literally $300,000 that we recovered in the first year. The rest wow. of the money came from China. <clears throat> so they invested into the facility, the campus, and then we also had an endowment for Marriott Foundation too. <clears throat> So that's why it's got a Marriott Tianjin China program. So in China, we have 1,100 students. Uh, that includes all four years. We don't really count the first two years until they accept it into, F- into our program, even though it's a one-way street. Once you enter our program, you're not going anywhere. So, But we only count them when they actually transfer to FIU. <clears throat> so what the second two years is about 470 students. So when you, we look at our demographics at the Chaplin School, we have about 38% international students, another 39% Hispanics, uh, about 12% Blacks and African-Americans. We're very diverse. And my own upbringing as an international student, I've always, I guess, biasly <laughs> considered international students first whenever I'm considering that, considering anybody for scholarships or financial aid. Now, and I, as, as a student, as an international student growing, um, going through my program in Nebraska, there's just not a whole lot of financial aid available or scholarships. Mm-hmm. They were kind of paying your own way pretty much or your parents are supporting you. So when I see the large number of international students we have here, I feel biased. I want to help them. Absolutely. That's amazing. And, and what are some of those scholarship programs? You know, tell us a little bit about how does one 
get into the Chaplin School of Hospitality at FIU? And, and what is that demographic as far as age? I think most of us go on the organic trajectory and, and start school at the right age. But I think during these times, we have people that might want to rethink their career and go back to school. So how would one get into the Chaplin School of Hospitality? I think we all think of school and, and our normal trajectory and, and going right out of high school and, and getting into a program, but there might also be people during these times during COVID that might want to rethink their career and, and get back into school. So could you tell us a little bit about what that would look like at the, the Chaplin School? Absolutely. So um, we offer a bachelor's and a master's program in hospitality management. Actually, it's hospitality and tourism management. And within the bachelor's program, there are several different tracks you can choose from. The newest one is spirits management, which was a collaboration with Bacardi. So we formed the Bacardi Center of Excellence. And along with that, we found some expertise, some deep expertise in spirits management. So we added that. And then we also have a beverage management program that was uh, in existence probably about 25 years now. Uh, and then your traditional lodging management, restaurant slash culinary management, tourism management, and event management. <clears throat> and then within a master's program, master's program, we have uh, revenue management, real estate development, and our latest one is mega event uh, management. So uh, anybody who's interested, <clears throat> they just need to apply, you know, and they can always reach out to me directly yeah, if you want to. Can I offer my email? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, they, Thank they, you. They can, Please do put it all out there. Absolutely. <laughs> they, can, they can reach out to me directly. My email is M-I-C-H-E-N-G at FIU.edu and we'll help you with the admission process. Uh, we do not require a GRE or a GMAT score for the master's program. And our master's program, actually all of our programs can be done in either face-to-face, hybrid, or online. So it's very flexible. Um, the other beautiful thing about our programming here that we have at the Chaplin School, actually at FIU, is the study abroad programs. <clears throat> and I know now's probably not the time to travel, but our study abroad programs uh, really varied. Um, we offer, before COVID, <clears throat> we were offering study abroad to Switzerland, uh, Saudi Arabia, Honduras, Brazil. Um, and then what we call semester at sea, which was probably about more like three weeks at sea, and we can earn nine credits in one go, and also China. And the nice thing about this study abroad programs is they were all in-state rates. So you were actually saving a bunch of money by taking these credits and paying in-state tuition at it. The ones in China probably are my most favorite one, but you do need... Um, a lot of confidence <laughs> in order to travel halfway across the wall, stay on campus. I mean, you're not alone. So there's always a group of at least eight, nine other American students with you <clears throat> and sometimes international students with you while you're in, in China. And we also arrange for uh, cultural tours while you're there as well. Wow. So, wow. I love all those locations. Where do I sign up? That's amazing. <laughs> What a, you said um, a semester at sea or three weeks at sea. What is that? What what does so that mean? We've been doing that for ten years now, and one of our faculty members, John Thomas, came up with the idea. So he initially started as one class on a on a week long cruise, 
And then he discovered along the ways over the years that there's this repositioning cruises. They leave Miami on their way to someplace in, uh, uh, in Europe. <clears throat> and it's normally between two to three weeks. The longest is three weeks. So he figured, well, if you have three weeks on top, on board of a cruise ship, you kind of have a captive audience. So you could actually offer classes there five days a week, leave the weekends open for them to enjoy whatever they're doing on deck. <laughs> but you could actually teach a whole series of classes. So many of our students will take between two and three classes in the three-week period. And then when they get to Europe, they have different stops. <clears throat> and normally we arrange for them to go do some sightseeing and then come back to the cruise, uh, to the ship <clears throat> after that. But the students always say it's such an amazing experience for what, for what they're paying. I mean, it is a true, um, um, mer- you're immersed. You can't leave unless you jump overboard. So, <laughs> What an incredible well, experience is- for somebody to get their education or a big part of their education mm-hmm. by being on the water and traveling like that. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. Yeah. And they get to see behind the scenes too on the cruise ship while they're on board. So usually the captain will come by the chief steward will come by as well and they give them tours behind the scenes that they don't normally offer to other guests or passengers. Yeah, that's amazing. I've done work with cruise ships before and I think that there's something incredibly special about their kitchens. They're unlike your standard commercial kitchen all the way down to, I know um, one of the cruise lines I, I worked a lot with was Crystal Cruise Lines and even like the straps that would go around your waist if they came into some treacherous waters, you know, so you didn't um, kind of fall all over the place as you were cooking. So mm. there's, it's, it's a very special thing. So yeah, I've toured it before too. And I always forget um, the commercial kitchens we have on land versus the ones on a cruise ship. And mm-hmm. you go on a cruise ship and everything's bolted down. Nothing everything. moves. Everything. <laughs> Nothing moves. There's no sharp edges. <laughs> yeah. And you, you, you take those for granted here on land. <laughs> the stuff just moves around. <laughs> Absolutely. So, um, Dean, tell us about the relation with the FIU Chaplain School of Hospitality and the South Beach Wine and Food Festival. So the South Beach Wine and Food Festival... Uh, so it was started in 2001, I believe. No, sorry, 2002. 2002. Uh, but before that, for five years, it actually started at the Biscayne Bay campus as the Florida Extravaganza, a one-day affair. And again, the, the guy who came up with this idea was Chip Cassidy. And he thought with all his connections in the wine world and to the Chaplin family and Southern wine and spirits at that time, why are we not doing something like that? So he put it together and he executed it with a small team here. We did it on the patio uh, facing towards the bay. <clears throat> I remember looking at some older pictures recently and there will be, I think his name is Gregory Hamilton, the actor. He's in all these pictures with his big flashy smile, right? Uh, and I can't remember the name of the singer, but Enrique Iglesias, what is, what is his dad's name? Iglesias. Uh, I don't know. I couldn't tell you. I saw I saw his pictures in a stack of pictures too <clears throat> that we took from those times. And it was just marvelous, you know. But we did it for five years on the bay. And then Lee Schrager came and he saw how we did it on campus. And he said, you know, the only way to make this grow is to move it down to South Beach. So at that point, you know, like, yeah, we love to see it grow. 
So Lee took the reins, and then in the next year after that, which was 2002, the first year, it became the South Beach Wine and Food Festival. And since then, it has raised $31.8 million for the school. And it all benefits the students um, and our, our school operations as well. From, yeah, from all those efforts, <clears throat> we've been able to build a state-of-the-art uh, kitchen laboratory, the Wine Spectator Restaurant Management Lab. We also have the Badia Spices Advanced Food Laboratory that came out of it. And the state of Florida's first brewing science lab. <clears throat> so last night, I was at a small gathering with uh, Dr. Barry Gum, who's our Harvey Chaplin Eminent Scholar in Beverage Management. And he's the guy who's been here for probably 16 years now. And he started our brewing science program. And I tell you, the number of brewers that came out to support him on his birthday was incredible. And the stories I was hearing last night, amazing. That's why we're, that's why I'm so pleased that we have all these legends here at, in Florida and at the Chaplin School and how we've made such an impact on all these professionals in the industry today. What do you see as next for the school? And also his dad's name is Julio. Julio, that's right. <laughs> Julio Iglesias. Yes, Julio yes, Iglesias. yes. But, but what do you see? What's next? What's next for FIU and for the Chaplin School of Hospitality and Tourism? What are you most I excited think, about? I think the way we learn, um, the way our current generation and future generations of students learn is changing. Uh, it probably started changing about five years ago. And I think the way we teach and deliver our curriculum today has to change along with it. So we saw right now, we're seeing right now the impact of the pandemic and how technology integration is really, really crucial. Uh, we started online learning for our bachelor's program way back in 2002. And for the last five consecutive years, our online program has been ranked number one in the country for our bachelor's program. So we, we fully understand the online learning platform. <clears throat> you know, they're always designed to be interactive and uh, very convenient for the learner. They can learn wherever they are, whenever they want. And then along came the pandemic and we had to take a whole bunch of face-to-face -face classes and literally move them remote overnight. So not everybody was trained for online and the way we're doing remote learning as we call it was mostly through Zoom. So it's just like what you were seeing in the public schools, <clears throat> Zoom lectures you know, at scheduled times. And what we've, what we've learned from this pandemic, uh, the different learning styles of the students. And we find that our students today don't necessarily have a laptop. And many of them actually learn from a, their cell phone, their mobile phones. So we did discover we need to create content that fits on the mobile phone. And we need to create content that's portable. And also, they also want to learn content that is relevant and applicable to what they're doing today. So it's like on-demand learning. And this is where the whole concept of micro-credentialing comes up, <clears throat> you know, teaching them and allowing, allowing them to collect um, digital badges along the way, then be able to apply that learning right away, and then coming back for more. So it really fits into what our vision is <clears throat> to, to, for lifelong learning at the school. Amazing. Do you have any success stories that you can share from um, some of your some of your students? From what we've done with the mm -hmm. learning piece. <clears throat> so um, one of the things we did with the Bacardi Center of Excellence is what we call Bacardi Teach, which at that point, 
Yeah, initially we envisioned Bacardi Teach to be a online platform for professionals. And then we discovered during the pandemic, <clears throat> uh, as much of the food and beverage industry was shut down and on-premise was not happening, that there was a bunch of folks out there who were craving for learning. So we discovered that we should we need to put content out there in shorter bites, uh, not more than five minutes. <clears throat> and that's how the whole entire Bacardi Teach platform was developed today. So we've taken what we learned from the classroom experience more into the professional world and also how there, there is a demand not just for from students but also from professionals for these certificates and badges. Uh, and to date, I believe there's been over 2,200 badges awarded of the Bacardi Teach program, which is less than six months old. So we find that there's a lot of demand for that. Wow. That's incredible. Um, tell us a little bit about some of the scholarship programs, because I did read that, you know, um, that you've given out quite a bit of scholarships um, since the school was started. So can you tell us a little bit more about? Mm-hmm. So the, the South Hawaiian Food Festival has raised um, literally close to $32 million. And the majority of that goes to a student scholarships. And what I've been very aware of, especially during this time, is this financial aid need doesn't always materialize itself uh, very easily, you know, meaning that you don't know about it till someone tells you about it. So what we've done is actively reach out to our students. If we find that someone's not enrolling for classes, we reach out to them and we, we say, can we help you register for something? And they say, well, normally we get an answer that, they have an outstanding balance that needs to be paid off. So I say, well, how much is it? <clears throat> and usually we find it's less than $1,200. So I say, well, if we pay off the balance for you, will you re-enroll for classes? And they say, yeah, absolutely. So these scholarships really help them. <clears throat> in the last year, we've awarded $1.4 million just in scholarships for our students, which is the most the school has ever awarded. The year before that, it was a little over $1 million, so it was $1.1 million. <clears throat> so we definitely recognize students need more, uh, especially during this time. And we also learned uh, $1,200 seems to be the magic number that helps them. Anything less than that doesn't really cover the bill or cover the expenses much. <clears throat> so we try not to award anything less than $1,200. Well, I just love how you guys are just so flexible and adaptable to the needs of your students, you know, because when you think of what we traditionally know about education and, and the traditional structure of education, it's it's very black and white, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's a very uh, specific process and you have to meet within that. And I just feel like everything you're telling us and it's so innovative and it's really working with the needs of your students. And I think that's just so fascinating. I think that's probably one of the core strengths of the school since its inception back in, since our first class in 1972, is our flexibility and our student centricity. And we've always maintained that. Um, When I started here at FIU, when I look at the curriculum and I said to myself, why do we have 30 credit hours of required classes, which is basically 10 required classes, and then another 10 classes, the electives, choose whatever you want. So why, why don't we just telling them for this track, you need this many classes, you need this set of classes. And I, after a while, I grew to appreciate that, mostly because I started to understand who our student demographic is. 
So we get about 70% of our students as transfer students. And when they come to us with credits, you know, our goal is still not to increase their expenses before they graduate. So we want to get them in and get them out as soon as possible at the lowest cost possible. So if you have a curriculum that's fixed and say, in order for you to earn a bachelor's degree, you must take these other 10 classes. And on top of that, another six more classes that are prescribed for you. It makes it harder and more expensive for them to get a bachelor's degree. So it becomes unattainable. At that point, the light came on and I realized this is why we have a flexible curriculum. <laughs> is, it's it's so true. So you're not like, yes. yeah, so you're not saying, oh, by the way, those 10 other courses, they don't fit within our curriculum. So I'm glad you did it, yeah. but you're not going to get credit for it. I think that is frustrating for yeah. a lot of people. So I think that's really good for some of our listeners that might have credits that maybe they didn't go back to school and, and maybe they want to pursue going to school where they could, mm -hmm. this would be a great opportunity for them to take a look at that flexible curriculum and, and be Absolutely. able to, to pick up maybe where they left off and, and then get that, those degrees that they've yeah. always wanted. Yeah, absolutely. Two years ago, um, my vice dean, Diane Newman, also came up with, with another idea. <clears throat> so she was in a conversation with a colleague from a different college. I, think, I believe it was Carter, College of Architecture, Communications, and the Arts. And they were talking about what they call uh, programming on demand. <clears throat> so she brought that idea back to me and said, this programming on demand, it was set up as three credit hours at Carter. And basically, it's a shell that you put in whatever you want each semester. And then, so it's content that's relevant, that's current, that students want. <clears throat> so I said, that's a great idea. We should totally do that, but let's make it one credit. And the reason why I say one credit is, <clears throat> I think the content that we want is more, um, that students want today, are more on demand than ever before. And if you try to tell them they need to spend 16 weeks before they'll get anything, that's too long. But if you tell them, all you gotta do is 16 contact hours, whether it's in two weekend days, a Saturday and Sunday, and you get the credit for the class, you might just have get gotten their attention. So we tried that the first semester. I don't think anybody understood what we're talking about. And we offered like six of them, ended up can canceling three of them, so about 50% because people just didn't understand it. The second semester, we started pushing it again, and then it caught up. <clears throat> then students started realizing instead of having to take an elective class, it's three credit hours, they could take three different topics, three one credit courses <clears throat> that they like, like on proximity marketing, maybe one on uh, hospitality analytics, and then another one that's related to perhaps uh, individuality, and they get the three credit hours, and it counts towards the graduation. And it's like, oh, that's awesome. You know, it's flexibility, and it, and it allows them to, to graduate on time still, and time so, is incredible. That yeah. is incredible. And I love that you said, you know, you're not trying to um, have your students have even more costs either. Mm -hmm. You know, you're not trying to break their bank at the same time. So there's so much value here Absolutely. You know, for new students for especially. In, and I'm going to say the P word. I don't like the P word, but I think a lot of us are pivoting right now. <laughs> mm -hmm you know, in our careers. And so it is, a, this is a wonderful opportunity for people to, to consider as to going back to school. Like Julie said, you know, applying those credits and heading down to somewhere beautiful like Miami, for goodness sake, you're not in a boring part of the world. That's for sure. It's beautiful yeah. there. And, yeah. uh, but then you could also, 
Yeah. And then you get the, the virtual component as well, Absolutely. which I think is fantastic. And I think you're so spot on right there with the fact that why does it have to be three credits for one class, you know, and, and people want, especially this, this younger generation, they want instant gratification, you know, Absolutely. like I don't want to wait 16 weeks. I want something now. I want to put in the work now and I want to get it now. So I think the fact that not only you can break up your credits in a shorter period, now you are able to customize your learning mm -hmm. based on your interests. So you were able to pull in three different topics into one, you know, uh, three credit hour um, yeah. course. So that's yeah. fantastic. <clears throat> the, the whole, I love the whole concept of um, the honors program. We pretty much design your undergraduate curriculum or the interdisciplinary majors, you know. So I think those flexibility really makes a lot of sense. Uh, I see us in, in the industry moving towards where everybody needs to have a bachelor's degree. It doesn't really matter if it's a bachelor's degree in literature or hospitality or business or marketing, or whatever it is. But then that's like your baseline minimum to get a, a job. <clears throat> and then where, where you really outshine others is what you do beyond that. So the experience is going to be crucial. Your work experience that you gain while you're undergraduate. And on top of that too, I think a master's degree is going to become pretty much standard requirement after this. People are going to differentiate themselves with the master's degree. And so the bachelor's degree is just a checkpoint, a checklist, I guess. And then the master's is where it, you really make yourself different. That's incredible. Um, so what are some of the programs you had? I, I, you know, I saw here that, and I'm very curious about this one because I want to know how I can sign up, but what are, what are dumplings with the Dean? That's a funny one. So <clears throat> it kind of goes back to me wanting to engage with the students, right? Um, I've always felt uh, that, well, number one, <clears throat> like if I would ask any of you, do you remember who the dean was when you graduated from college? Nobody could name the name. Nobody, right? I'm like, well, why is that? Why is it that students don't connect with the deans but connect with the professors? Is it because they're not visible? So this is where they come from. It's like, maybe we should do dumplings with the dean. They rhymes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so and everybody that. loves dumplings. I mean, come on. <laughs> Absolutely. So we did that here in Miami and we had a great turnout the first time. Now people were like, what, free food? Sure, we'll be there. <laughs> So it was a chance for me to walk around to talk to our students, to re-engage with them. And I have not been in a classroom for almost three years now, and I'm missing it. So one day, once, once my schedule uh, gets a little better, I want to go back to teaching one class per semester at least. <clears throat> They'll help me re reconnect with the students. So back to the dumplings with the dean, there's really a way for me to connect with the students. Uh, but also when I duplicated it in China, uh, Tianjin campus, the, the guys over there said, maybe you should be making dumplings with the dean. Oh, okay. What? Even better. Now you <laughs> can really? you extend you this to... <laughs> outside of the, the school as well. Right. So I said, you, you want me to make dumplings with the dean? I was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> so we did. We <laughs> oh, had a did. grand time. Yeah. <laughs> there was about 
uh, maybe about 25 students all around a big table. We all had the bowls of filling and then we're showing them how to make dumplings and they were cooking it. And it lasted for like an hour and a half. Everybody was happy. We had just a great time. Yeah. What a way to to really engage with them, right? On mm-hmm. on actually creating something. So they did th- that in China and then you replicated that here? Or did you also go to China and, and make dumplings? I was in China making dumplings. You were. That's fantastic. <laughs> I bet your wife was happy you were in China making dumplings and not in her kitchen. Yeah, it was a mess. (laughs) (laughs) But 25 people, yeah. Yeah, So how often then do you go to China um, and and visit the school there? Is that something you do regularly? It's about three to four times a semester. I haven't traveled since the pandemic, but normally it's three to four times a semester. Wow. Oh, wow. That's, that's often. a lot. That's, that's a, a lot. very um, active, very active partnership there. It is. It is. There is 13 full-time faculty members there, you know, so, and they all report to me, uh, you know, I, I kind of have a relationship that's not in person. <laughs> so I felt like I needed to be there in person. <clears throat> so, you know, it, it's a long flight, but it's worth it. And, and I got it down to a science. I literally would leave on a Monday morning on American Airlines. I'll be there by Tuesday afternoon, uh, local time there. And then I'll leave there on Tuesday, no, sorry, on Friday evening and be back here by Friday night, local time. So wow. Monday to Friday. You <laughs> are a road warrior, literally. Holy cow. <laughs> That's goodness. why it's only three times, three to four times a semester. Any longer would be like, uh <laughs> Yeah, going to Asia from Florida, from Miami is no joke. I mean, from the West Coast, it's a little bit more reasonable, but coming from yeah. the East Coast, it's, I, I, I feel you there. And that the fact that you went multiple times um, a year is, is very notable. And it was a 12 hour difference, too. <clears throat> so nice. while I'm sleeping there, people will be working here, and I'll wake up to a bunch of emails. <laughs> And oh then yeah. turn around, same thing happens. <laughs> it was oh pretty much goodness. a 24-hour workday. Oh That's if, great. If you had any advice for our listeners that are really considering a career in hospitality, what would you tell them? I, I would say, and I think it's probably the same thing I say to anybody for whatever they're doing, you definitely have to find your passion. You know, if you're not passionate about what you do, then it becomes work and you know, why are you doing it? <clears throat> but for me, you know, the reason why I love what I'm doing is because I'm really passionate about number one, food, and then number two is people. And when you can combine the two in a setting like higher education, this just completes my whole world. So I got food and people and students. <laughs> it's Nirvana <laughs> for me. So finding that passion is crucial. Um, you know, and you, you'll discover yourself along the way too. Uh, like I tell my students, you know, I had a conversation with one not too long ago too, which was in between jobs and had moved out to Colorado. Didn't really know if this is right path, considering changing career, going back to school or what options are. So, and I told the same thing. <clears throat> what is it that drives you? Like, what did you like when you were working? She actually worked for Southern Glaciers for a while. What did you like when you were working there? It's the people. It's the beverage industry. Yeah, well, then you should stay with that because I tried it for a year and 10 months. I didn't like it. <laughs> I went right back into hospitality. <laughs> so I that's, think once you find your passion, it becomes so much more enjoyable. Yeah, that's really great advice. I mean, I think um, 
it, the hospitality industry is so special. It is about people. And then, and then you can branch out whether food is what you enjoy. Mm-hmm. Tourism is what you enjoy and passionate about. Uh, beverage alcohol is what you enjoy. And, and, and just that's like a whole nother world to, to discover brewing, distilling, you know, mm-hmm. distilling wine. It's just endless. So that's something that we try to do here with Served Up is really reach the broad hospitality industry because there's so many different avenues that, that you yeah. can take. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it's not always just about service to people, even though there's a primary component. <clears throat> you could have a different, completely different skill sets within hospitality. You could be a really strong revenue manager, understand numbers and analytics really well, you know, and used to have a position here. Or you could be the best salesperson. Um, Chip Cassidy is a classic example. He could sell you anything, right? Because he's such a people person. And one thing that I've noticed too from our students, <clears throat> they remember the stuff you tell them. I'm sorry. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think we love we have dogs. To, I know. We're very dog friendly. <laughs> We're dog so friendly. Sweet. We need to do a whole dog podcast. That's what I think. <laughs> Just this thing every once in a while, they're like, hello. <laughs> hello. So, She's like, you forgot about me. <laughs> I know. So I'll say, like Chip Cassidy. And one thing, one thing that struck about me and the, that our students remember about him and the alumni too are the stories that he would tell. And these are real stories from his experience in the industry. You know, so you could sit through an entire lecture of hour and a half <clears throat> and your professor could be lecturing about something, but... What sticks is when they relate it to the experience and the story that comes along with it. So I think that's what our students, there's a lot of how they, we're learning today through the storytelling method. And I think that's making a difference <clears throat> for our students. Absolutely. And you know, on that note, we so appreciate you telling us your story. And I think our listeners are going to be so excited to hear not only your story, but the story of FIU Chaplain School of Hospitality and Tourism. And it's it's such a special one. And I feel that it's only the beginning. And with all the innovative approaches that you guys are taking to education, I just can't wait to to hear more and, and where this school is going to be in the next 10 years and, and your impact to the school. So thank you thank so you. much. Thank yes. you, Julie. And, thank- and Bridget. Yes, this has been you. this has been a lot of fun. <clears throat> um, I have a board meeting coming up on Monday, and I was just going through my pre-planning with my team yesterday, and I said, "What is it that you want to ask the board members?" You know, so I started thinking about it for a little bit. I go, "Well, we want to be number one in the world." So I'm just going to say that. Hey, hey, hey! You heard, you, know, you heard it here first, <laughs> listeners. And you will. I have no doubt about that. You will be the the number one in the world. And I think you're already starting it. You've already got the international reach with the program in China. Um, definitely the the footing in the United States. And, and it's really just the beginning. We're just scratching the surface. So I can't wait to have you back on and talk about, you know, where where we've come and, and what what new and exciting things have have come out of the program. Thank you, Julie. Thank you so much for joining us today. This has been just incredible. 
so much information. And I really believe that today, Michael, that you've really inspired a lot of our listeners and you've opened their eyes to new options and, and new ways to pivot during this crazy time that we're living in. So thank you for all of the good work that you're doing at FIU and at the Chaplain School of Hospitality and Tourism. It's important and we thank you for it. Thank you, Bridget. It's a, it's a pleasure and my honor to be on the show today. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Absolutely. Well, Julie and I, would really like to wish you, you know, great health. Please stay safe. And we wish you a lot of peace. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. You too. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Served Up is brought to you by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Produced by Zunu.online. Music by We Kill the Lion can be found on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes. Cheers!